Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do great work, and you can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including Mark Schulman. Mark is the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. We'll be talking about current global events. Larry Reed is the president emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. <clears throat> Just finished the Olympics. Jesse Owens, of course, made his big splash during the uh, uh, in 19, I think it was 1932 in the German Olympics uh, during Hitler's era. Talk about that very controversial story. And Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, will be joining us as well. It is February the 21st, and on this day in 1848, the Communist Manifesto, written by Karl Marx of Frederick Engels, was published in London by a group of German-born revolutionary socialists known as the Communist League. The political pamphlet, arguably the most influential in history, uh, proclaimed that the history of all hitherto existing society is the history of class struggles and that the inevitable victory of the proletariat or working class would be put an end to the class society forever. Originally published in German, uh, the work had little immediate impact. Its ideas, however, reverberated with increasing force into the 20th century, and by 1950, nearly half the world's population lived under Marxist government. Let me repeat that. By 1950, half of the world lived under Marxist governments. Karl Marx was born in uh, Trier, Prussia, in 1818, and the son of a Jewish lawyer who converted to Lutheranism. It's so interesting to see how many uh, of these communists came from privileged family, as an aside. He was studied law and philosophy under the universities of Berlin and Jena, initially was a follower of G.F. W.F. Hegel, the 19th century German philosopher who sought a dialectical and all-embracing system of philosophy. In 1842, Marx became editor of a liberal democratic uh, newspaper in Cologne, the newspaper grew considerably under his guidance, but in 1843, the Prussian authorities shut it down for being too outspoken. That year, Marx moved to Paris to co-edit a new political review. Paris was at the same time a center for socialist thought, and Marx adopted the more extreme form of socialism known as communism, which called for revolution by the working class that would tear down the capitalist world. In Paris, Marx befriended Frederick Engels, a fellow Prussian who uh, shared his views and was to become a lifelong collaborator. In 1845, Marx was expelled from France and settled in Brussels, where he renounced his Prussian nationality and was joined by Engels. During the next two years, Marx and Engels developed their philosophy of communism and became the intellectual leaders of the working-class movement. In 1847, the League of the Just a society, secret society, made up of revolutionary German workers living in London, asked Marx to join their organization. He obliged, and with Engels, renamed the group the Communist League and planned to unite it with other German worker uh, committees across Europe. The pair was commissioned to draw up a manifesto summarizing the doctrines of the League. Back in Brussels, Marx wrote the uh, Communist Manifesto in January 1848 using a model of a tract Engels wrote for the League in 1847. In early February, Marx set the work to London, and the League immediately adopted it as their manifesto. Many of the ideas in the Communist Manifesto were not new, but Marx had achieved a powerful synthesis of desperate uh, ideas through his materialistic concept of history. A manifesto opens with the dramatic words, A specter is haunting Europe, the specter of communism, and ending by declaring, The proletarians have nothing to lose but their chains. Sounds familiar, doesn't it, from the campaign of... <laughs> Joe Biden, they had a world to win. Workers of the world unite, it ended. And uh, in the Communist Manifesto, Marx predicted imminent revolution in Europe. The pamphlet had hardly cooled after coming off the presses in London when revolution broke out in France on February 22nd over the banning of political meetings held by socialists and other opposition groups. Isolated riots uh, led to the popular revolt, and on February the 24th, King Louis Philippe was forced to abdicate. 
The revolution spread like brush fire across uh, continental Europe. Marx was in Paris on the invitation of the provincial government when the Belgian government, fearful of the revolutionary tide would soon engulf Belgium, banished him. Later that year, he went on to the Rhineland where he agitated for armed revolt. The bourgeoisie of the uh, Europe soon crushed the revolution of 1848, and Marx would have to wait longer for his revolution. He went to London to live and continued to write with Engels as they further organized the international communist movement. In 1864, Marx held, uh, helped found the International Workingmen's Association, known as the First International, and in 1867 published the first volume of his monumental Des Capital, the foundation work of communist theory. By his death in 1883, communism had become a movement to be reckoned with in Europe. 34 years later, in 1917, Vladimir Lenin, a Marxist, led the world's first successful communist revolution in Russia. Can you believe that? Half of the world in 1950 being led, being uh, dic the dictators were Marxist. Unbelievable. Well, this is from the uh, Committee to Unleash Prosperity. If you don't read their newsletter, it's really interesting. But this is excellent follow-up to the whole notion that, uh, what is it, 174 years ago that the Communist Manifesto was written and published. Sometimes we feel like just throwing in the towel and surrendering to the nitwits of the left. How else can one respond to the headlines like this from the Chronicle of Philanthropy? Two philanthropies, a Hewlett Foundation and uh, ODR Network, Today committed a total of more than $41 million over five years to five academic institutions as part of a broader effort to challenge neoliberalism, an intellectual movement that began in the late 1940s and established broadly accepted principles on the role of markets and governments that became firmly established over the course of decades. The intellectual framework that became known as neoliberalism developed by thinkers like Hayek and Milton Friedman resulted in policies to shrink the government, reduce government debt, open up trade, and deregulate the market that gained steam under the Reagan administration in the United States and under Margaret Thatcher's watch in Britain. Now, those sounds like uh, laudable and noble ideals. Well, not to these people. Where to begin? Hayek and Friedman, Reagan, Thatcher, period of reestablishing the supremacy of free market capitalism, free trade, privatization, and lower tax rates, launched the greatest period of wealth creation, poverty reduction, and technological progress in human history. Over this period of human flourishing, close to 2 billion people on the planet, almost half living in China and India, were all, uh, moved out of severe poverty due to the triumph of liberalization and the concept and collapse of central government planning. Free trade had done more to reduce global poverty than every single uh, government program ever invented. Larry Kramer, the president of the Hewlett Foundation, says the goal of the grants is to overcome the mantra that government is bad and markets are good. The leftist academics who will be uh, funded boost uh, or boast, I should say, that they are want higher taxes, higher minimum wages, and tariffs, more government deficit spending, and modern monetary theory. What is saddest of all this is that Hewlett Packard was an iconic American technology company led by two visionary entrepreneurs who employed tens of thousands of people, made tens of billions of dollars, and gave birth to the modern digital age. The company was started in David Packard's garage. We can all give thanks to our free enterprise system, which the Hewlett Foundation wants to assault. Isn't that ironic? And, uh, quite frankly, so sad. But nevertheless, this uh, kind of coincides with the uh, Davos elite and uh, what they're working to perpetrate on the government. More on, uh, on the world. We'll talk about that in a moment. The left's crusade to crush the revolt of the working class in Ottawa hasn't reached the levels of Tiananmen Square with tanks rolling in, but decision by Justin Trudeau to invoke the Emergency Powers Act for the first time in history to shut down the Freedom Convoy shows a military intervention may not be far off. In addition to granting police powers close to martial law in the national government, the act gives it a, the ability to freeze or seize the bank accounts of those donating the, to the movement. So, not surprising, there's a run on banks and ATMs. The crowdfunding platform that used to send uh, money to the truckers has been hacked and donor details have been released. The Washington Post has started emailing people whose details they have been asking exactly why they donated. 
This kind of privacy violation is precisely what the U.S. Supreme Court had in mind last year when it ruled 63 against a California regulation requiring that tax-exempt organizations must disclose the names of major donors. The court agreed that the argument of the nonprofits that the policy violated the First Amendment. If we ever need evidence of just how far a so-called democracy will go to crush its opponents in the absence of a constitutional limits on its power, behavior, we can uh, look to Canada. This makes it all the more important that the U.S. judges are firmly grounded in the need to protect our constitutional rights. And with some irony involved, the uh, President of the United States, uh, Biden, extended the emergency proclamation for the United States uh, just this last week. Uh, from March 1st on to the future. Well, and by the way, some of the Canadian friends aren't all surprised that Trudeau has invoked the Emergency Powers Act to destroy the Freedom Convoy. In 2013, as leader of the Liberal Party, he was asked what country he most admired besides Canada. Trudeau, who is in 2016, reacted to the death of Fidel Castro by calling him a larger-than-life leader who served his people failed to call him daddy, but nevertheless, he answered the China question with a mix of callousness and economic illiteracy. There's a level of admiration I actually have for China. Their basic dictatorship is actually allowing them to turn their economy around on a dime and say, we need to go green, we want to start investing in solar. Fact check, by the way, no country ever comes close to pollution levels of China, and the country is building scores of new coal plants. The solar and green energy rhetoric is uh, a head fake. Uh, Biden and Trudeau fell for it, unbelievably. And, uh, well, you, I have so much more that I want to talk about, but it's time now to move to our first rest. This, this segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Mark Schulman, founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. That and more right here on The Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of The Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of The Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252 252- 
Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform. And you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website, choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to visit with Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Right now we have with us Mark Schulman. Mark is an author. He's written many books, uh, mainly on past presidents. He's also the founder and publisher of a terrific multimedia website. You've got to check it out. It's great for kids of all ages, including you and I. It's called HistoryCentral.com. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Always a pleasure, Mark. Thank you, Mark. And uh, so let's pick up on what's happening around the globe. And it seems like uh, the Ukraine situation with uh, Russia on apparently, according to uh, President Joe Biden, on the throes of wanting to invade Ukraine. What are your thoughts? Well, things have turned have a turn for the worse in the last half an hour or so, actually. Mm. Um, the Ukrainian separatist group, which is just a, a, a proxy group set up by the Russians to begin with, has now officially requested Russian aid because they're being massacred by the Ukrainians. Complete fake news, not you know, not in effect. Nothing taking place, obviously. Mm. Uh, Putin has called an emergency meeting of his National Security Council to take place anytime in the next um, hour or two, from what I understand. And of course, last night there was talk about a Putin-Biden summit. To try to, Macron has been trying to negotiate some sort of settlement of something. We're not, we're not quite clear what, but Putin threw, threw cold water on that this morning and said the situation isn't ripe for a summit. Hmm. I guess he's waiting until after he conquers Ukraine before he agrees to a summit. So is it possible so, that this is all somewhat of a uh, just uh, a, that uh, Putin is simply uh, orchestrating this as kind of a tease for Biden? No, I don't believe that. He has three quarters of his army is now surrounding Ukraine. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of soldiers, and literally stripped soldiers from everywhere in in Russia to send them to the Ukraine borders. You don't do all of these things without, um, you know, w- without a motive to actually do something. Let's put it that way. Mm. Um, but he is doing something. Yeah, just trying to... to to use this to pressure, because I'm not sure what he what he expects to accomplish with pressure. He does, he does not want. He made it very clear that he thinks Ukraine should be part of Russia, mm-hmm. and I think that's what he's going to try to do. I mean, there's no guarantees; no one understands for sure. But that's my sense of of what this was all about from the very beginning, and all the nonsense talk about well, it's because NATO expanded, or all these other things are all <coughs> Russian propaganda more than anything else. Um, I I appear from time to time as a paid person on on uh, RT, Russian TV, on completely irrelevant subjects to any of this. So they, they call me every time it's an issue that relates to the Holocaust and Poland and those things. Mm-hmm. I, I won't go any more at this point, but I could hear before I get on in the air, I, the open mic is, is, is from what's going on in the rest of the broadcast. And um, Let's put it this way. It's pure fake news. makes makes American fake news seem like uh, absolute you know, absolute truth. Yeah. Well, uh, but he does accomplish something by just standing on the border and uh, making these threats, doesn't he? He's, he's, he's uh, kind of... Yeah, a... he, he managed to unite NATO like it's never been united before. Mm-hmm. Um, eliminated the, the problems that NATO caused during the Trump administration. Um, NATO is now considered vital to everybody. Um, I think um, he didn't accomplish what he was hoping to. He was hoping to... He was hoping to to break NATO to some extent. That's part of his goal. It's always been part of his goal to weaken NATO, to um, to get some of the, the one thing he has accomplished. He's effectively annexed the Belarus. I mean, we were sort of quietly forgetting this, but the reality is, remember, Belarus was is is an independent country mm-hmm. with the last of the dictators still in power. The Belarus prime minister or president for life, who's been president for thirty years always managed to keep a certain distance from Russia, even though he didn't go too far. Um, and then when he had all the demonstrations recently, he requested Russian aid. And now, uh, in return, Russia is using Belarus as a potential staging point to attack Ukraine. They announced yesterday or the day before that the Russian troops will remain in Belarus. So this is back to Soviet Union period of time. Mm. Uh, it's so interesting. I, I still hold... 
some, uh, at least uh, one theory that uh, I think is worth considering because we really don't know what he plans on doing. I mean, I think that a lot of people say we have evidence that he's planning on attacking, but it may be that he's simply uh, <clears throat> making things difficult and creating chaos uh, for NATO as well as uh, President uh, Biden. Yeah, but I don't think he's cre- he's not creating chaos. I mean, that's the interesting thing, obviously. What has he done? Look, just now is the Munich Security Conference. In um, Munich, every year there's this conference that takes place. Yeah. Leaders of all over the world come together. Yeah. American congressional delegations, Republicans and Democrats all come together. Um, and until now, recently, the Russians also were coming. They didn't come this year. But the sense from the conference was never have everyone been as united as they were at this conference, including Republicans and Democrats, who, with the exception of some odd people like Hawley and uh, one or two other really um, odd people, are united in, this, in the views of what uh, Putin is up to and what needs to be done by the United States. So uh, he's done the opposite. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's, not, there's nothing he's done that's weakened NATO, weakened the United States, or even weakened Biden. Uh, you know, I guess if he attacks and conquers Ukraine, the argument will be done always on Biden's watch, and so that, that'll weaken Biden to some extent. But no one is in favor. You know, the only thing that would stop the Russians is actual American troops, and no one is in favor of that. Well, you know, uh, Kamala Harris was our representative there at this conference that you had mentioned. She said her comments there, it's been over 70 years, and through those 70 years, there's been peace and security, she said. Uh, we are talking about the real possibility of war in Europe. A reporter asked Harris what a Putin invasion would actually mean for Americans. Can you explain to Americans what exactly they will face? She asked, he asked, and when America stands for her principles and all of the things that we hold um, dear, it requires sometimes for us to put ourselves out there in a way that um, maybe we could incur some costs. <laughs> that, was, that was her statement, which is just a word salad of some sort. It's just, I don't know. You know, it's very interesting. Everybody who who <laughs> I've spoken to, who were actually there, uh, said she came off very well at the conference. Huh. Interesting. So, um, it's very interesting. I know there's a certain, uh, again, you know, I mean, I have this real problem that's occurred recently. There are differences on domestic opinion that have always been there, and um, Republicans and Democrats have known to fight about those issues. But usually, until the last uh, dozen years or so, um, you know, they used to say politics ends at the uh, at the oceans, where I forgot the exact term, the, the, yeah. the oceans beginning or the shore at the shore end. Right. Politics ends at, at, at the shore end, and that um, people are united in their views. And in this case, too, I mean, there is very little daylight between Republican and Democratic views when it comes to Ukraine. There's sniping here and there, but um, generally speaking, everyone has the same view of what has to be done and the limits of what we we can do. Well, you know, I just, I just, clearly, I, I quoted uh, her, Mark. I just, I mean, this is. A yeah, way. I understand that, but you, you know, I don't know if the, in full context, so I can't tell you. I didn't hear the, didn't hear the comment. Yeah, well, but I don't see what the what, what was the point of quoting her now. Well, the point is that she had an opportunity to make a statement, to be, declared some leadership, to uh, make a. But she, but she did in the speech from all that all that everyone has said that the speech was excellent, and she declared clear leadership there. So, is she a perfect <laughs> vice president? Probably not. So. What does that have to do with the crisis? Well, good point. So we'll move on from there. But nevertheless, it's uh, we're right now still waiting, and uh, we'll see what happens. Right, we're waiting on Putin. I mean, that's the one part he does like. The whole world is waiting on Putin. Right, exactly. Hey, let's move uh, to the Olympics. The Olympics are now over, and uh, Norway just did uh, <laughs> it performed uh, wonderfully at the Olympics, at the Winter Olympics. So, uh, but uh, you know, it had a very tepid response from uh, the part of the globe. Some anger about uh, what's happening with the Uyghurs. What are your thoughts? Well, this was going to be a big party for coming out once again for the for the Chinese and showing their leadership and everything else. And it ended up being very much the opposite, obviously. It was a tense, tense Olympics. Part of it was the COVID restrictions, obviously. In other words, China's zero COVID um, is very hard to to enforce, and they're doing it, and they did it in ways that made it made the Olympics strange, let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the reality is that people were on, you know, people came to the Olympics with burner, burner computers and burner phones because uh, that's how much they feared what the Chinese could do. So 
it didn't. Let's put it this way: it will not go down as one of the greatest Olympics in history. No, just the opposite. It will go down as probably one of the worst Olympics, in in that sense. And then, of course, you have the Russian doping issue, and you know, that whole thing is so strange, because the reality is, because of the doping that was found in the Summer Olympics, the Russians were sort of barred from Olympics for four years. The Russian Russian Federation. Mm-hmm. So instead, these are Russians who are not officially the government representatives. I mean, either you ban people or you don't ban people. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. So the whole thing was strange, and then the whole string with with this with the young woman skater who, first of all, you know, you you saw um, how she was treated when she when she didn't make the gold medal, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, screamed at by her coach, and instead of enveloped and shown love because she tried hard and didn't make it the opposite you know it's it was heartbreaking to watch that part of it yeah um, so uh have our athletes it was not a good it wasn't a feel good olympics let's put it that way no and i would imagine a financial disaster for those that participated financially well i'm sure it was for the for the network yeah. um for carrying it because ratings were way down advertisers uh, people weren't watching it <laughs> there was just something about this that sort of didn't it never caught anyone's imagination. Nope. Right? I mean, people weren't talking about it. People weren't thinking about it that much. It was taking place, but, you know, more of the issues were taking place than the sports. Yes, exactly. To have our athletes return... But I did like, what do you call it, when Team Finland uh, beat, this, beat the Russians, the trending uh, statement on, on Twitter was, this is for Ukraine. Huh, interesting. So, so have our athletes returned home? Do you know? Um, I think they're starting to return home. It ended just yesterday, so yeah, probably probably they'll start returning home today and tomorrow, which will be good. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see. We also didn't expect, you know, the the, the original feeling was that um, Putin wouldn't attack Ukraine until after the Olympics. So now we're after the Olympics. So let's let's move to uh, Canada. Lots going on in Canada. Yes, absolutely. I mean, now things seem to be quieted down. <laughs> Um, the protesters obviously were quite disruptive, made their point, and people are just not clear, and the Canadians themselves are not clear what to make of it, to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Um, the Canadian Truckers Association um, came out in support of the government's action of declaring emergency laws. I think in the United States, we've... I thought I had it open, but I don't. Um, I think we've... Um, exaggerated what the emergency regulations in Canada were um, because they're not quite as quite as people um, expect them to be let's put it that way um, they basically hello yes I'm here I'm, 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 okay. I'm thinking about uh, when you're saying that I'm, I'm thinking immediately of the fact that the, they're actually uh, uh, taking uh, financial taking uh, financial penalties to people who have participated, even giving money towards the truckers, so uh, and, and wiping out their accounts in some cases. So it's a, it, those seems like pretty dra- draconic, uh, draconian. I'm not measures. sure that's really the case. We don't have a lot of proof of that. We've had stories about that, but we have no real proof. I mean, um, Canada is a very um, that's this way. It doesn't sentence a lot of people to jail. It doesn't. It's not very strong. Of um, I'm just looking at a number here. The most the most common sentence in Canada is probation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the long, and the most common jail time is is uh, 30 days. So that that's on one level. On the other level, the emergency rules basically just allow more than anything else. They allow for the federal government or however they call it the. Um, it's not called federal, whatever, the, yeah. whatever they're called in Canada, the national government, to supplement local governments and law enforcement when necessary. Um, it doesn't uh, suspend habeas corpus or anything of that nature. It's not. Uh, it's not what it sounds like. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Well, as I mentioned uh, last week, and you and I, I, I think it's difficult to. We can both have our opinions, but I think Trudeau made a huge mistake by not just acknowledging these people. They're Canadian citizens. They're you know, responsible for ten percent of the workforce, as I understand it, in Canada. And they're not willing to at least to sit down with some of their representatives and talk about their grievances. That that probably could have settled the whole thing. Maybe unclear. Very unclear, and to be honest with you, I think I said this last week. I know a little more about Canada than I knew last week. Uh-huh. 
but I've never really kept up with Canadian politics. It's one of one of all of our problems, I think. Yeah. I, I think um, I've certainly known more about Soviet politics and Chinese politics than I know either about Mexican or Canadian politics. Yeah. Interesting. And I would say that's probably the, the, the truth for most people who follow foreign affairs. I would say you're uh, you're absolutely right. And of course, those are two things we should probably understand a little bit better because there's a lot going on that it really affects our culture and our way of life. So let's, uh, today is a President's Day, and I would love to, as a historian, to get your reflections and thoughts about President's Day. Absolutely. So look, America uniquely created a president and not a king. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the key things in, in, you know, when you think about how the Constitution was set up, that we wanted a president. Um, president Washington began the two-term um, tradition that presidents only serve for two terms. When it was broken once by FDR, the Congress then stepped in and we, we amended the Constitution so it would never happen again because presidents really shouldn't serve for more than two terms because once you serve for more than two terms, you start becoming a king, even if you're not a king. Right. Uh, that's very important. We've had some great presidents. We've had some mediocre presidents. Um, our founding presidents, was, each one of them was, were great in their own standing, I mean, because they were just great men who were involved in, in those important periods in history, when you think about obviously George Washington, who led the Continental Army, you think of John Adams, who um, who was key in in the Declaration of Independence and negotiations with Britain, and Jeff- Jefferson, who actually wrote it, um, Madison, uh, who wrote the Constitution more than anything else. Mm-hmm. These are great men, especially when you think of their times and how knowledgeable they were for their times and how thoughtful they were. Mm-hmm. Um, we had a Lincoln who goes down by most historians as the greatest president in American history. Mm-hmm. It's interesting because it's easy to be the greatest, and not that I'm criticizing Lincoln, don't get me wrong, but it's easy to be the greatest president when you're a wartime president. Mm-hmm. And war totally um, is totally about what, what, what you're doing as president. He was a great wartime president and clearly... Uh, led the Union to victory. Without it, it's not clear the Union would have held together. And on top of which, it's a shame, of course, that he was assassinated because we might not have had the period of Reconstruction that was so problematic afterwards if he had stayed on as president. He had the power to control those who wanted to be um, less forgiving to the to the South, and if they'd been a little, little, little more forgiving, and yet they wouldn't have had the pushback at the end of Reconstruction that yeah. pushed uh, the situation of African-Americans in the, in the South back so far. Uh, we've had a lot of generals who have been um, presidents, particularly in the post-Civil War period. I mean, even before that, you know, we had uh, Andrew Jackson um, and we had um, Taylor, mm-hmm. um, both, pre- both um, generals. And then a post-Civil War period, we had a, a number of presidents, all who had fought in the Civil War and had been generals of some kind or another. And then in more modern times, of course, we've had President Eisenhower, who was um, considered one of our most successful generals who became president as well. Teddy Roosevelt. Um, and, well, Teddy Roosevelt was not a general. He was only a colonel. All right. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> he, he was the assistant uh, secretary of Navy, and then he was a colonel in the, uh, in the, um, in the Spanish-American War. Um, he, of course, though, was a military hero, so that yeah. certainly yeah. certainly helped him. And he wasn't elected president the first time. We, f- we forget that sometimes. He became president because McKinley was assassinated. Yeah. Um, and he was a very young man when he became president as a result of the McKinley assassination. We have people who are underrated. Probably McKinley was one of those people who have been underrated. Yes. We have, we have those who have... Um, they were great presidents. You can argue with their policies or not, but someone like FDR uh, clearly impacted the country, whether you support everything he did or not, impacted the country more than most presidents have. Um, partly, of course, how long he was president, but then, of course, he was the wartime president. That um, There's no question that without FDR and possibly Churchill, uh, World War II might have ended very differently. Yeah, I mean, I, and I also would like to put on the list, of course, Truman. I think he is such an interesting man. It's such a, uh, a man of integrity. I think. Uh, oh, absolutely. Truman, Truman was a great president, but that, without a doubt, again, another accidental president because he took over for, for FDR. Yeah. Um, but he, 
united he he more than anyone else was responsible for the post war world and for pushing back on communism for for supporting the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe without that plan, who knows what would have happened in terms of Europe. It was key to bring bringing Europe back uh, to strength economically, and of course NATO was founded under his watch. Yeah. And then there's the Korean War. You know, it was, it was interesting. I was listening to a debate between um, Brett Stevens and Matt Taibbi. Uh, Brett Stevens being much more of an interventionist, and Matt Taibbi uh, being traditional uh, from a left left wing uh, anti-interventionist. And you know, one of the arguments that Brett Stevens made was people who are against intervention look at what happened in Korea. Now it cost us a lot of a lot of men and a lot of treasure, but I don't think you'll find any Koreans in South Korea today that aren't glad that we did and that they're not living under the rule of North Korea. Ah, that's so true. Well, you know, Mark, I think who we consider great and who we don't, but depends on the metrics that we use to to make the statement about who's great. And uh, we, I'm sure many Americans differ on that. I heard a report. Well, that, I mean, here's the one thing I would say. I mean, I, 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 by the way, I would add to the great category Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Um, greatness is not necessarily, in my opinion at least, is not necessarily the policies you you um, bring about or you, you believe in. Uh, greatness is the effect you've had, whether whether we think it's, you know, whether you, you and I agree with what they did or didn't agree with the fact a great president manages to change policy, change direction. And ultimately, I think a key factor in a great president is his ability to unite the country as much as possible. Yeah, good points. That's, that's really, you know, to do something with a minority, to accomplish something, but then have such pushback that whatever you've done is going to be overturned, you know, when when you're out of office, means you didn't unite the country beyond, be, behind whatever you've done. Yeah, I think, I think that's also important. I think those are great comments, again, on President's Day. Mark Schulman, again, the founder and publisher of HistoryCentral.com. Again, the website, uh, check it out. Good for kids of all ages, HistoryCentral.com. Mark, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a great week, everybody. You as well. Thank you, Mark. All right, coming up, Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the uh, Foundation for Economic Education. That and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best. There's a laugh-out-loud comedy running right now, and you really got to see it. I hope you get tickets by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Jim McTigg. Right now we have with us Larry Reed, President Emeritus of the Foundation for Economic Education. Larry, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, it's a pleasure, Bob. Thank you. My pleasure. Larry, tell us about the Foundation for Economic Education. Okay. We are an educational organization headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, but our work takes place all over the country and quite often overseas as well. Our focus is on young people of high school and college age, and we endeavor to educate and inspire them in ideas of individual liberty, free enterprise, private property, and personal character. Your listeners can learn a lot more about us and see our fresh new content every day of the week at fee.org. There they will also see that we offer free courses in economic uh, subjects as well as many free videos. Yeah, terrific organization. I've seen the impact that uh, the organization's had on young people, both high, high school and college age. And if you have somebody in your life at the high school or college age, I hope you'll introduce them to the Foundation for Economic Education, fee.org, F-E-E.org. Larry, you wrote a great piece on Jesse Owens and, uh, and you know, of course, participated in the, the Nazi Olympics uh, back in the 30s. But you wrote a column that Jesse Owens, they don't teach you about in history class. Maybe you could tell us about it. Yeah, Jesse Owens was just a remarkable man, one of the greatest athletes of the 20th century, a wonderful American, a very uh, forgiving man of solid character. Uh, He grew up from very humble beginnings in Alabama, went to Ohio State, uh, and of course went on to compete ultimately in the 1936 Berlin Olympics. Mm. And those were a critical uh, set of games there, or at least they came at a very critical time. It was three years before World War II, but nonetheless, uh, the world was beginning to learn a lot of very bad news about this Hitler regime. And uh, so athletes at the time had a moral conundrum they had to deal with. Each of them, I'm sure, had to ask themselves, do I go uh, to Berlin uh, or do I uh, register a protest against the anti-Semitic, violent, and racist uh, Hitler regime by not going? Uh, Of course, overwhelmingly, they did go, and in hindsight, we ought to be very glad that Jesse Owens did because by winning four gold medals there, he certainly upstaged uh, Hitler and proved the um, fallacy of his notion of the uh, superiority of the Aryan race. Unbelievable. I mean, he certainly did just uh, thumb his nose at it. And what was interesting about that, I guess, is that when he was there, Hitler didn't acknowledge him, did he? Yeah, uh, Jesse was pretty much on his own uh, at the uh, games. Hitler didn't uh, want to give him any attention. Uh, What's even worse is that once he came back uh, to the United States, Jesse uh, was snubbed by Franklin Roosevelt, who invited all the white athletes to the White House, but uh, Mm -hmm. pointedly did not invite Jesse, uh, which was a terrible shame, very uh, serious blot on the uh, character in the administration of Franklin Roosevelt. But Jesse took it uh, reasonably well. He was not the kind of man who would carry resentment uh, for the rest of his life. In fact, as I point out in this article, which is at fee.org, Uh, Jesse was a very forgiving man, and he thought people should be judged by their uh, personal character, not by the color of their skin. And he uh, not only uh, said that many, many times over, he uh, made that a theme of a book that he wrote in 1970. Yeah, uh, truly great man. If you can imagine this, coming back from the Olympics and ends up pumping gas. As yeah. to to make a living, uh, all his fame just totally discounted because of the color of his skin at the time. Yeah, and that sort of harkens back also to his choice of Ohio State uh, to go to back in the uh, early 30s, because uh, he had done so well in track and field that uh, when it came time to choose a college, uh, there were many offers on full scholarships. He could have gone to many different. Uh, colleges, but he had a desire to go to Ohio State, and it happened to be one of those 
colleges or universities that uh, did not offer a scholarship. So he deliberately chose one that he had to go to work uh, to earn the money in order to pay his way uh, at. And, and he did it as a page in the legislature, as a uh, janitor. I mean, you name it. He took any job to raise the money to pay um, Ohio State to be able to go there, which is quite a remarkable thing. What a wonderful human being. Part of your video, by the way, I hope our listeners will not only read the column uh, the Jesse Owens they don't teach you about in history class, but also watch the videos, which I did, and it's very moving. One's about 24 minutes about his life, so interesting, but also one is an interview of uh, later in life, I guess just maybe a few years before he died, that uh, really spell out his, he spells out his philosophy, and uh, boy, what a wonderful man. Yeah, he sure was, and i deliberately inserted a number of videos because I thought they really show uh, him for the man of high character that he was. So uh, they're easy to find within the article and at the bottom of the article. And um, I, I hope listeners will take a look at every one, every one of them. Absolutely. And again, uh, go to the website, fee.org, F-E-E.org, and buy Larry Reed, the column that Jesse Owens, they don't teach you about in history class. It's a great column, very inspiring. And uh, talk about people. I love stories where uh, good people overcome adversity to, uh, to do great things, and certainly that's the case in Jesse Owens. Larry, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Bob. Thank you. My pleasure, indeed. All right, coming up, Jim McTagg, a former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries. I think he's got another one coming out soon. Uh, follow, shake, or I should say, follow the leader and the, and the sequel, Shake the Money Tree. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit blueprovencenaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's blueprovencenaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're, we're provi- providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We have with us Jim McTagg, as I mentioned before the break. He's former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief, retired to Lancaster, uh, Pennsylvania area, and he's written a couple of novels since. Two great ones. It's uh, Follow the Leader and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. Jim, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. It's wonderful to chat with you, Bob. Thank you, Jim. I understand you just returned from Florida. I did. It was so nice to sample uh, summer. We, now, we went to the Orlando area because 
It was a last-minute trip, and you just can't get uh, a decent rental along the Gulf Coast because so many people have decided uh, that they want to spend the winter in, in Florida this year. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. Your economy must be uh, uh, booming down there. It, it is indeed, Jim. So uh, you ended up what, going to Orlando? Uh, yeah, you know, for so for an older couple, we were at a swimming pool resort, so it was very nice. But Orlando itself is more of a, uh, as, as you know, is more of a theme park destination for for people with uh, kids that are into that kind of thing. Yeah. And frankly, frankly, you know, we we went to uh, Universal Studios one day, and that didn't really do much for us. Uh, we went to Epcot, which I hadn't been to since the '90s, and it was disappointing. It looks a little frayed around the edges, number one. Number two, uh, uh, it wasn't full service owing to uh, COVID restrictions. Uh. Um, and it didn't have a, a European flavor. I mean, the far, there are no foreign employees there, I assume, because of COVID. So um, to make a long story short, I would have preferred to be along the Gulf Coast, but um, because I decided at the last minute to take a trip, uh, there was no room at the inn, and yeah. I didn't feel like staying at the stable. Well, yeah, Jim. Hey, off air, you mentioned that uh, today is the 50th anniversary of Nixon's visit to China, kind of an auspicious time, and uh, with such interesting results 50 years later. Yeah, it's, it's really fun to do the research on this. And since the stock goes today, we have lots of time. To, to do some research, but, uh, um, you know, the, uh, what's interesting is that China, Red China and the Soviet Union were on the brink of a nuclear war in 1969. And because of uh, clashes along the uh, Siberian border, uh, the Russians, true to form, were slowly encroaching on, on what was uh, a deemed Chinese territory. The Russians were uh, uh, grabbing land, much like they're they're attempting to do it in Europe today. Mm. And uh, there was an accident where where a Russian personnel carrier ran over a group of uh, Chinese fishermen and killed them on the river. So the Chinese responded uh, with a commando team that ambushed uh, Russian troops. And there, were, there was a battle in which uh, hundreds uh, died. And um, the, the Russians were afraid that the uh, Chinese would respond further by sending, um, you know, maybe a million men across the border. And the Russians knew they couldn't defend against that, so they, they were prepared to respond with nuclear weapons, uh, which is kind of scary because <clears throat> they, <clears throat> they, you have to assume they have the same sort of mentality today and the same kind of uh, decision mechanism, even though the, the Soviet Union has fallen. So the, uh, uh, they, were, they were quite willing to pull the nuclear trigger to stop any uh, Chinese incursion. So this was in 69. Uh, the U.S. secretly went on full nuclear alert uh, at that time, which I didn't realize until I researched it today. Uh, Nixon realizing that uh, he could drive a wedge between China and the Soviet Union, decided to be the first president ever to visit that country in uh, 1972. And he, he flew over and met with them, Mao Zedong, and it was uh, just a colossal event because nobody knew what was going on in China. It was much uh, a hermit kingdom like uh, North Korea is today. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting is the Taiwan independence issue came up, and Nixon pretty much set the template for for the um, Taiwan policy, at least uh, through Clinton, uh, through through uh, George uh, W. Bush as well. It, it, it was uh, um, we do not support Taiwan independence, but we neither will we. Uh, be in favor of suppressing it. Right. So it was a very dubious, and I think the underlying message was that the U.S. would not aid Taiwan. And I'm reading this uh, 
there's a national security uh, archive you can find on the web, and there are hundreds of stories about mm-hmm. this meeting. So, um, so it, I'm confused about what our status is with Taiwan as well. It seems like uh, maybe under um, Trump, since Trump, our policy has changed, and and, and so instead of being hands off, uh, our policy now is if China tries to forcibly take Taiwan, if there can't be a, a, a joint peaceful resolution, uh, we will come to the aid of Taiwan. Well, apparently, uh, uh, now that the Olympics are over, that apparently is kind of a trigger point for what Russia, Russia might do in Ukraine, but also what China might do in Taiwan. So this is kind of an interesting time. It's kind of a wait and see. Let's see what happens. But uh, what's interesting also is the I think uh, China was given uh, uh, most favored nation status and trade and all, all kinds of things that, quite frankly, I think we're regretting today. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing, too, is that, you know, when Nixon went to China, it was to drive a wedge between Russia and the Chinese, the Soviet Union and the Chinese. Right. And and, and this time around, we've had uh, uh, Putin and, and China's President Xi uh, shaking hands and, and having like a mutual defense pact. So so now uh, they're driven closer. Um, although today I'm reading, and this is confusing, that the Chinese are now urging the Russians not to invade the Ukraine hmm. to seek a peaceful re- so they're So the Chinese are trying to play uh, both sides of the, the fence. They don't want to completely alienate the U.S., but, but by aligning themselves with Russia, they're sort of telling the U.S., you know, we, we want you to uh, uh, back off, uh, and, you know, uh, stay out of our part of the world. So well, A lot of unknown, Jim. I, I'm just what, what uh, my money's on the fact that Ukraine will not be invaded by Russia. What are your thoughts? Uh, I think we'll get the partial invasion that was green-lighted uh, by Biden. Mm. Uh Weeks ago, you know, when it, when it, his famous gaffe, when he when he said something <laughs> to the effect that if it's a minor incursion, yeah, no, uh, we're, we're not going to get too upset about it. Oh my gosh, can you believe that? Uh, just uh, so, you know, so it's a way for the Russians to save some faith, so they'll go into the uh, the uh, territories of the, of the Ukraine with the break, you know, the breakaway Russian sections. This is what I think will happen. Uh, it won't cause that much disruption to the world economy and the markets. You know, maybe maybe a week or two, and and uh, the West will uh, you know, protest it. But it's actually Biden has already given the move tacit approval. Hey, before I let you go, uh, the, I just appreciate any of your comments. Uh, anything you uh, take a look at the tea leaves. What's happening with the financial markets? Where's this all going? I have urged investors to, to stay away from the markets until just be, after Labor Day because, I mean, you can see the handwriting on the wall. The, the Republicans are going to sweep Congress. Uh, inflation isn't tame. I mean, voters are going to be hurt and angry. And as we get past Labor Day and people begin paying attention, the, the psychology is that Republicans are better for big business and 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 therefore for the markets uh, historically by the way that's not necessarily of course not <laughs> in fact you know, but, but 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 i think that will be the psychology so i think um uh, we're going to have a really volatile market all throughout the summer for for, for a bunch of reasons primarily inflation and and the fed's uh, inadequate approach to fighting it and then uh, after Labor Day, I think there'll be a surge of bullishness. Oh, interesting. Jim McTagg, again, uh, the books are Follow the Leader and Shake the Money to two, two Great Reads. Jim, I always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to join you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. We've got great guests lined up for tomorrow's show as well. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. Thanks 
so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.